X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Friday, March 19th. Today, back in the day in 1895, the Lumiere brothers recorded the first footage on their newly patented cinematograph. The 46-second long film depicts workers leaving the Lumiere factory in Lyon. In fact, that's exactly what the film was titled. The device was a motion picture camera, as well as a projector and film developer, all in one. The French invention was direct competition for Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, which had to be viewed through a peephole by one person at a time. The cinematograph was also portable and crank-operated, as opposed to Edison's camera, which was essentially a piece of electric furniture. The Lumieres are credited with bringing on a new era of early cinema. And today, back in the day in 1979, C-SPAN was launched, airing the first-ever televised session of the House of Representatives. C-SPAN was developed by Brian Lamb, who had the idea to create a nonprofit network funded by the cable industry, which would televise public events and congressional hearings. The goal was in contrast to television newscasts, which Lamb believed obscured the reality of policy decisions. On March 19, 1979, C-SPAN began its programming with a speech by then-Tennessee Representative Al Gore. On that first day, only 3.5 million homes were wired for C-SPAN, and the network had only three employees. It wasn't until 1986 that Senator William L. Armstrong convinced the rest of the Senate to allow C-SPAN to expand access into Senate sessions. The network has since expanded to include three channels and a radio station. Polls estimate that the network has about 70 million regular viewers. And today, back in the day in 2011, the Timbers played their first major league game. In 1975, Portland's new North American soccer league team was named Timbers via a public contest. While the team was popular through the 70s, the league lost steam, and Portland was soccerless for some time. The Timbers existed in the short-lived Western Soccer Alliance from 1989 to 90. In 2001, the new Timbers joined the A-League. The team's match attendance was near the top of the league by 2010. Finally, the team was offered an expansion into Major League Soccer. Their first game against the Colorado Rapids was 10 years ago today. Fortunately, the Timbers lost 3-1. to one. On today's episode, we're going to start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Emily Green, managing editor from Street Roots. First up, X-ray. it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Today is a do-or-die moment for many bills in the Oregon legislature. A third of the legislative session is now gone, and the state has 4,000 proposed bills drafted. Now is the first of several deadlines for proposed bills approaches. Republicans are looking to slow down the process. The deadline means that any bills that haven't advanced it in committee by the end of the day are dead in the water. So legislators are scrambling to advance their agenda items. But House Republicans are dragging their feet. They have insisted that each bill be read out loud in its entirety during each floor session. Remember, the Democratic supermajority means that a bill can be passed without a single Republican vote. 
So instead, Republicans can work to limit the number of Democrat-sponsored bills that make it out of committee. House Speaker Tina Kotek has countered by scheduling extensive morning and evening floor sessions. Senate Democrats are trying to limit Republican lawmakers' ability to delay the Democratic process. On Thursday, they revealed a package of bills that would punish lawmakers for unexcused absences. Additionally, a proposed bill would lower the number of lawmakers needed to call a session into order. This package targets Republican lawmakers who have, in the past, staged dramatic walkouts to prevent Democrats from passing major policy changes. The most recent walkout happened last month as Republicans demanded to reopen the Capitol to the public. On Monday, the chief clerks of each chamber will release a list of all the bills that have survived this first round of cuts. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Wednesday, Oregon reported 393 confirmed cases and four COVID-related deaths. To date, 2,353 Oregonians have died from COVID-19. 116 Oregonians are currently hospitalized from the virus. The OHA has logged just under 1.5 million vaccinations as of yesterday. Health officials are concerned about Oregonians developing herd immunity. Oregon has been fortunate enough to have some of the lowest transmission rates in the country. In March 2020, only 3.8% of Oregonians tested positive for COVID-19. The only three states with lower infection rates at the time were Maine, Vermont, and Hawaii. But now officials warn that the low transmission rates may make it harder for Oregonians to reach herd immunity. When 70% of the population has either been vaccinated or previously infected with COVID, we will have reached herd immunity. Currently, only 17% of Oregon's population is naturally immune. The stats present a double-edged sword. While Midwest states are currently being ravaged by COVID-19, they're also quickly building up herd immunity. North and South Dakota, which both saw huge uncontrolled outbreaks, are now at 60% immunity. Experts believe this means that Oregonians will be especially reliant on vaccinations. Officials also say that the slow build to herd immunity is worth the thousands of lives that we've saved by proper physical distancing. OHA Director Patrick Allen said the low mortality rate tells him that, quote, the sacrifices Oregonians have made have worked. The family of Kevin Peterson Jr. planned to sue Clark County. The announcement was made during a press conference on Thursday. In the five months since Peterson's death, his family has mostly remained silent. Peterson's father said, quote, for right now, my goal is to make sure my son gets justice for what was done to him. Kevin Peterson Jr. was killed by police last October as he was running away from a drug bust. He was shot at 34 times and hit four times in the back. Since the shooting, Clark County officials have called for police to start wearing body cameras. Clark County police had an outside agency conduct an investigation of the shooting, and the shooting is currently under review by elected prosecutors in Pierce County, Washington. The Oregon Senate wants all Oregonians to have access to health care. The Oregon Senate approved a measure on Thursday that could prove to be revolutionary. The bill known as Senate Joint Resolution 12 
would allow voters to determine if the state is obligated to provide Oregonians with health care. If the bill passes, it would amend the state's 162-year-old constitution. It would also make Oregon the first state to recognize health care as a fundamental right. The resolution was met with opposition from Republican senators. Senate Republican leader Fred Girod said the state lacks the funding needed to turn the measure into a reality. He believes that Democrats are making an empty promise, saying, quote, if Democrats are serious about giving Oregonians free health care, they should come up with an actual plan. The measure will move to the House next, which is largely controlled by Democrats. Portland Metro will no longer use prisoners to clean illegal dumping sites. According to Oregon Live, Metro heavily depends on prison, prison labor to collect trash and litter. Prior to the pandemic, which limited Metro's access to inmates, Metro used four inmates and two deputies to clean illegal dumping sites. The inmates were paid a dollar each day, but accounted for roughly half of Metro's illegal dumping workforce. Following social justice protests, Metro decided late last year to stop using prison labor. Metro's chief operating officer, Marisa Magical, later said that using prison labor was, quote, problematic from a racial equity perspective. Madrigal added that the majority of inmates from Multnomah County and other regions are people of color. Since the beginning of the pandemic, Metro has struggled with managing illegal dumping sites. Illegal dumping has skyrocketed. It currently takes Metro's two-person work crews over a month to respond to an illegal dumping report. And finally, some good news. Fans of the Timbers and the Thorns will be allowed to attend games this spring. On Wednesday, the OHA announced that soccer fans will be allowed to gather at outdoor stadiums at 25% capacity. That means around 6,500 people can join to watch a Thorns game when the season starts on April 9th. That'll be the first professional sports event with a live audience since March 10th, 2020. The Timbers will have their first live game four days later on April 13th. Masks will be mandatory and seating will be spaced out for spectators. Tickets for the first two games of the season go on sale on March 25th. Meanwhile, the Portland Trailblazers are still waiting to see if fans will be allowed back in the Moda Center for games this season. Blazers president Chris McGowan said in a statement that he is confident fans will be allowed back in soon. Fingers are crossed. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-ray. 42 individuals have died from COVID-19 while incarcerated in Oregon. Street Roots recently focused on these individuals and shared their stories. Here are managing editor Emily Green from Street Roots and X-ray's Andy Lindberg with more. 42. That's the number of incarcerated Oregonians who have passed away from COVID-19. Some were young, others were middle-aged, many had families and lives waiting. For some, the opportunity for parole was in sight. This week's edition of Street Roots memorializes each and every one of these 42 men. Here to tell us more about the story is managing editor of Street Roots, Emily Green. Emily, good morning. Good morning. So the the names of the deceased weren't released by the Department of Corrections. How did you find out who these people were? So we ended up t- 
taking a list of deceased uh, prisoners that we obtained through public records requests, and we cross-referenced that with news releases from the Department of Corrections, along with their COVID data and news reports from around the state at different times during the pandemic to pinpoint uh, who was who on this list. Mm -hmm. And um, we went back and forth with the Department of Corrections quite a bit. A lot of the data they gave us um, had errors in regards to uh, the dates of death and dates of release. Um, But in the end, I think uh, we came to a point where uh, we can confidently say that we um, have an accurate listing now. Why, why didn't the Department of Corrections release this information? Well, because uh, these prisoners died of COVID-19, they cited uh, health care laws under HIPAA mm. as a reason for not releasing their names, and they also cited the privacy of prisoners. Um, however, we, we felt it was important that these folks be brought to light. Well, can you tell us a little bit about some of these men? Yeah, so um, all 42, as you said, they are all men. Um, 16 of them were within two years of being released. Mm. Uh, one one man, as previously reported by uh, Willamette Week, Joseph Jones, was within two days of his release Wow! when he died. Um, they ranged in age from 32 to 89, um, and a lot of them were middle-aged. 11 of them were in their 40s and 50s. And, you know, they're, um, they represent, you know, quite a cross-section of um, different, coming from different parts of the state and different ethnicities. Um, and we were able to uh, do in-depth profiles on four of them. Mm. Well, the, the editorial for this week's uh, Street Roots is, is really moving, uh, I think in part because... The 42 dead are, these are really strong reminders of the stakes involved when we talk about prisons, when, when, when we as a society take on uh, the caretaking of, of these men. What's at stake when we focus on reform instead of rethinking prisons entirely? You know... One one thing about this project is the spread of COVID in our prisons was in large part, you know, a symptom of the archaic way in which we house people who break the law. But it was also really exacerbated, according to news reports and lawsuits that have been filed, through willful negligence on the part of DOC staff, um, not wearing masks, referring to the pandemic as a pandemic or an election ho- hoax. Um, and so we just really saw a lot of problems with the culture and the system itself, um, just really illuminated by this pandemic as it has illuminated so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we've known for a long time, right, that our prison system isn't working. But the reality is that it's working exactly as intended. You know, it's an extension of slavery and for punishment is mm-hmm. why it was built the way it is. And it's still really existing that way and we keep chipping away at it you know making changes to sentencing laws um the department of corrections recently decided they're going to call prisoners in uh, adults in custody instead of labeling them as inmates 
but we, we're still leaving the system itself completely intact. So what our editorial board was kind of getting at is that we're having the wrong conversations. And at, at this time in history, when we know so much about um, the intersections of trauma, mental health, race, and addiction with our criminal justice system, we, we need to be talking about what should be replacing that system as opposed to just, you know, amending the carceral state while leaving it completely intact. Well, and that's interesting that that uh, language is changing, but the system is the same. Uh, just, you know, dress, dressing it up in, in different clothes um, you know, in July, there was a proposal to release 2,000 inmates from custody to protect them from the virus, but ultimately less than 200 have been released. Why the disparity? You know, I think there's a lot of pressure from uh, district attorneys groups, victims' rights groups, uh, to keep people in. Uh, Oregon released far fewer prisoners than a lot of states did. And, you know, this is really part of the reason that we're doing this report um, is because, you know, we're really trying to um, do justice Mm -hmm. to the folks who have passed away. I mean, this is the closest thing to an obituary or memorial some of these deceased prisoners were get. And the reality is, is that these were avoidable deaths and they incurred within institutions that are funded through taxpayer dollars overseen by officials that we elect. So this should matter to every voter and every taxpaying Oregonian. That's yeah, being being done in 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 our name, in my name, these things. And um, with our money, yeah. about uh, one point seven million dollars a day. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're speaking with um, Street Roots managing editor Emily Green um, about um, uh, the 42 Oregonians who've passed away in uh, while incarcerated due to COVID-19. Uh, there's legal action currently being taken against the Oregon Department of Corrections on behalf of incarcerated people who were harmed in prison during the pandemic. Uh, can you give us some details about that uh, case? Yeah, you know, and there's been several cases and a lot of cases brought um, by individual prisoners. But this uh, recent uh, class action suit was brought by uh, 90 prisoners against the department, uh, many of whom became sick with COVID. And it's it's really alarming, uh, some of the testimonies that are included in the complaint that was filed uh, in early February. Things, uh, you know, correctional officers coming into cells without wearing masks after being in a uh, quarantine area. People who have tested positive for COVID still showing up for work to work alongside uh, other prisoners who have not tested positive um, cellmates, one having a positive COVID test and the other not, and then later testing positive, you know, people speaking on phones a foot apart from each other with no masks. And it it just, it's alarming. And at the same time, you have some of these prisoners with a lot of underlying health conditions who have no way of protecting themselves mm-hmm. and and they know that this is a virus that that can kill them and then they become sick with it and it's um 
according to the lawsuit, the it just leaves a lot of trauma. And a lot of these folks, um, you know, 42 people died, but more than 3,500 prisoners have come down with COVID. That's that's one in four prisoners, or about 28%. Wow. Um, compare that with a statewide rate of 3%, right? Mm-hmm. So there, and you know, in addition to the people who have died, there are, you know, many who have lingering symptoms from COVID that they are still dealing with and might deal with, you know, for the rest of their life. It's, it's remarkable, you know, the, the, the cultural narrative of the incarcerated isn't one that talks about how vulnerable they are um, in when when they're uh, incarcerated, and so it's it's striking to hear um, these uh, the stories that you're that you're sharing about uh, the way that that these men and women are, are being treated when they're, as you, as you say, they're, they're under our care. Um, uh, so, uh, this week's street roots is, is on the street and, and available for folks to read. Yes. It, uh, we released it this morning. I, I encourage folks to pick up a copy. Um, we've got the package that uh, was put together by myself and investigative reporter Chris May, who just did a fantastic job of tracking down family members and friends of the deceased. Um, it was put together wonderfully by our editorial producer, Monica Kwasnick. Um, I, I, I encourage people to pick up a physical copy, take a look at the names and photos, read the stories of these people who have passed, um, and learn a little bit more about, you know, what, how COVID is really impacting um, folks who are being housed in Oregon prisons. Well, thank you for your, your hard work and your, your team's hard work on this. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Emily Green, Managing Editor of Street Roots. Thanks again, Emily. Thank you. Thanks to Emily for joining the local, and a big thanks to Street Roots for their ongoing local news coverage. A special thanks to our production team, executive editor, Will Romy, lead writer for today's show, Carly Quadros and Nebraska Lucas, supporting editors and writers, Julia Oppenheimer, Sam Smargiazzi, Miranda Selinger, Jonathan Covington-Brain, Ryan Miller, writer Sherwood, Carlos Molina, Joey McClone, and John Collier. I'm Emily Gilliland. So thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Mercury, Portland Tribune, Portland Business Journal, KGW, The Willamette Week, COIN, Pamphlet Media, OPD, K2, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, Like Portland, and our news partners, Street Roots and Eater Portland. And thank you for listening to The Local your hometown in just about 30 minutes. Thank you so much for subscribing and giving us a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you Monday. X-ray. X-ray.